Good morning once again. Last week, one of the last verses that we looked at in the message to fathers and to all of us, but specifically to fathers, was Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, where it says, And you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. That's a great verse. It's a good reminder for us. And since my return to full-time preaching, I haven't been following a plan. I haven't been working my way through a book. I've just kind of been going where I think the need is and where the, I mean, Father's Day, it kind of calls for a message on Father's Day. So after I finished preaching last week, as I was reviewing the sermon, I continued to read Ephesians chapter 6, and I discovered that, or was reminded of the fact that the rest of the chapter is just as powerful as Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. And seeing as I don't have plan as to where I have to go, that is where we are going to go. Ephesians chapter 6. It is an incredible statement of the power of God at work in the life of the believer today and a call to us to walk within that power. We're going to look at what is known as the armor of God, and I pray that this will be a fresh and a challenging look at this passage. This passage has kind of become a mainstay for Christians, at least for Sunday school classes anyways. When I say armor of the Lord, what's the first thing that enters your mind? That's a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer it. One of the first things that enters my mind is a coloring page for Sunday school of the armor of the Lord, where each piece of the armor is kind of over-accentuated so you know exactly what it is. But the armor of the Lord and this passage should not be relegated to children or to a coloring page. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10 to verse 18 or verse 20, we have a statement of what is necessary for the believer to live in victory today. This is a passage that describes how a believer is to be equipped and empowered for battle. And it seems to me that as time progresses, the battle is waging hotter and hotter. And so as I read this passage, I thought, I need this passage for today. You need this passage. We need this passage. We need to know how to be empowered to live as God has called us to live in a world which is full of evil. And as the days draw closer to Christ's return, evil will become more and more prevalent. And we will need to be all the more armed against that evil. So we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 to 18 or 20. But remember as we read this, the Apostle Paul has laid out clearly the wonder of the gospel in saving lost and sinful people here in the beginning of Ephesians. He's gone from there to laying out the responsibility of those who heed the gospel and are saved. So this is a conclusion to that. Paul is informing us how to walk and how to live in victory. This is what empowers us to heed the commands that he has already given to us. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. But before we read, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that it is the revelation of God to man, and that it contains what is necessary for us, that it is sufficient to instruct us and to guide us, not on its own, but by the Holy Spirit. So we ask that you would, by your spirit, impress upon our hearts and lives today the truth of your word, We ask that you would convict us where we need conviction and strengthen us and encourage us where we need that as well. 
Lord, help us not to take your word lightly. Help us not to relegate these great pictures to to just a coloring page, but to see the importance of what is being said and to respond to what is being said as well. So we submit ourselves to you. We ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would empty us of ourselves, that you would be firmly established as Lord and Master in every area of our life, that these areas where we have resisted you, we ask that you would weed them out, you would root them out, Lord, that we would be pliable for you to accomplish what you desire in us. Guide us in this time, Lord. May, may you speak through your word by your spirit this morning. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly, as I ought to speak. May God bless to us the reading of his word this morning. The title of the message, In Christ You Are a Force to Be Reckoned With. In Christ You Are a Force to Be Reckoned With. This passage shows us how to be that force to be reckoned with. You can be victorious in the power of the Lord. As you, I think as this passage shows, as you know your enemy, would be the first point, as you know your standing in Christ would be the second point, and as you know your dependency upon Christ. So we are able to live victorious as we first point know your enemy. But before we actually get to that first point, we need to start with where the passage starts in verse 10. It says there, finally, it starts with that word, finally, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. We're starting at the end of a book, which is why he's saying finally. It's probably not the best place to start a study, but that's fine. We're just doing one or two, in this case, messages from Ephesians chapter 6. But the great topics of Ephesians is what he is saying finally too, in light of everything else. Chapter 2, consider that. Chapter 2 is probably the most powerful statement on the work of God in salvation. And it culminates or it wraps up the theme of it in verse 8 and 9 of Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's in chapter 2. In chapter 3, he speaks about the mystery of the church, that Gentiles and Jews are brought together in one new body. In chapter 4, he speaks about spiritual gifts and their outworking in the church. In chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, he gives some clear and hard commands. He goes from theology, like he normally does at the beginning, to practical in the end. 
And after having given those clear and hard commands, he says, now this is how you're able to do it. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You will not be able... And if you look at the commands, the topics that are in chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, chapter 5 starts off with all these sins that you're not supposed to do. Don't walk in these. And then after that, it says, but walk in these, and it lists some of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And then you have an introduction of relationships, the relationship between Christ and the church. This is how it's supposed to look, he says in Ephesians chapter 5, or Ephesians chapter 6. Then he says, relationships between, what is it? I think the next one is parents and children. This is how it's supposed to look. This is how you as a believer, you've heeded the gospel in Ephesians chapter 2. Now you've become a believer. This is how you're to live in responsibility, in relationships between different people. He's, he lists the uh, relationship between employer and employees. The relationship between husband and wives. He lays all of this difficult stuff out. Practical Christianity. And then he says, there's only one way you're going to do this. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. It is only possible to live the Christian life as God has called us to live it if we are strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That's the broader context for this passage and a bit of an introduction to this passage. A couple other things that I want you to keep in mind as far as introduction before we jump into knowing your enemy. And that's as far as we're going to make it today, actually, is knowing your enemy. We'll have to look at the next, the second and third point next Sunday. But a couple other things in context before we look at what it means to know your enemy. The first thing is taken from verse 10. It says to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So we could reach the conclusion very aptly that we can be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Not only is it possible, but it is commanded. In other words, it is expected of the believer that you would be strong in the power of the Lord and in his might. Every command that is given within the word of God God has provided enough that we can fulfill that command. So when he says, be strong in the Lord, guess what? It's possible. That's actually a good place to start. Even as we look, before we look at the armor of God, it is possible, believer, to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his And it's expected as well. It's commanded of us. We must establish that. We must acknowledge that we actually can. And we must also acknowledge that it's not self-strength he's speaking of here. It's not just saying you as a person need to be strong. You need to be strong in the Lord. This is a power that is within us because Christ is within us. It is not of ourselves. This is the power of God at work in us and through us, which is why it continues and says, and in the power of his might. Be strong in the power of his might. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. The church today does not need more soft, pushover, pansy Christians, for lack of a better term. Yes, we acknowledge that we are broken, we are weak, but in Christ, we are made whole and made strong. Colossians chapter 2 verse 10 says that in Christ, we are complete. We are complete in him, it says. We're complete, full accomplished, strong. We're made whole in Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that when he says we are complete in him, Colossians 2 verse 10, it's right after saying, beware, lest anyone cheat you, speaking to believers, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of man, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. 
Be strong in the Lord because you are complete in him. And you don't need these other things added to you to be your source of strength. We don't need philosophy of the world. We don't need traditions of men. We don't need the self-help guru's wisdom. We don't need the intelligence of Einstein or the smooth tongue of a great orator. We don't need a list of titles or a list of initials after our name. We don't need the adoration of the masses. All of these things, and some of them are not necessarily bad, but they are not our source of strength. They are not our source of completeness. That is Jesus Christ. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. Our strength is in the Lord. The second thing that I want you to notice, even by way of introduction, just from verse 10, is that the strength of the Lord isn't a downgrade from all of those exalted things that I just mentioned. The strength of the Lord is not a second best option. We can and must be made strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. It is his might in which we are made strong. It is in according with his provision. And that provision is infinite because our provider is infinite. All-powerful, creator and master of all, Jesus Christ. What is the measure of the power of his might? It says we are to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Well, what is the measure of that might? Is creation the measure of it? Is time the measure of God's might? Is grace and love and truth the measure of God's might? The reality is his might is immeasurable. His might is immeasurable and we are to be empowered by it. We are to be empowered. So be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Believer, the one who has trusted in the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life, we can and we must be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So two things to keep in mind just by way of a lengthy introduction. We can be, and we're called to be, strong in the Lord, and that strength is not substandard to any strength out there. It is according to the immeasurable power of God, and so is immeasurably greater than any other strength. So jumping into how that works, how that looks, we can be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might by knowing our enemy, knowing our standing, and knowing our dependency. Knowing your enemy. In verse 11, Paul begins with an analogy of armor, which we'll look at a little closer in verse 13 to 17. But for now, what, what are we to be armed against? He lists and he speaks about the armor, but the whole point of telling about the armor is so that we can be armed against something. Know your enemy. Know what we're to be armed against. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, the New King James Version puts it. Now, wiles is an old English word. When was the last time that you heard that in regular conversation, wiles? Um, you might have heard the term wily. It's not used very often either, unless you're watching uh, Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner. A useless fact of the day, Coyote's name is actually Wile, and his middle name is Ethelbert. So it's actually Wile Ethelbert Coyote, but his initials were created to play a pun with his name to come up with Wiley. And he well defines what that word means. It is to always be crafting, plotting, and deceiving. The wiles of the devil. Plotting 
crafting and deceiving. Strong's Concordance defines the word wiles to be trickery. The Greek word for wiles is only used one other place in Scripture, and it's also in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, says that God gave spiritual gifts to the church for our edification and sanctification. Then it goes on and says that we should no longer be children, that we should be mature. We shouldn't be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. The phrase cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting has within it that same word translated wiles of the devil. So you get a good mental image here of of what Satan is doing and what he is, right? Cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting. That is how he works. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting of the devil. Know your enemy. Know how he works so that you can resist him. Now, it is not Satan himself that is opposing you. That may come as a surprise to you. Remember, Satan, or the devil as he is called here, is not everywhere present. He is a created being and is limited uh, to time and space the same way that other created beings are. So he's only in one place at a time. He's not everywhere present. And although he may be powerful, he is certainly limited. God has put limits upon him. He is not all-knowing. He cannot read your mind. He is a finite spirit being. He is still under the sovereign control of God and is only capable of doing what God permits him to do. So you're probably not going to be attacked by Satan himself. He can't be here attacking me and halfway across the world attacking someone else. He can't even be here opposing me and in Peace River opposing someone else. He's not infinite. He is finite. So it's not so much him that we battle person to person with, so to speak, but the wiles of the devil. It is his plotting and scheming and deceptive planning. It is his purposes and intents that we are to be armed against. It is his campaign of unrighteousness and ungodliness that we are to be on guard against. And he's carrying out those plans universally through other fallen angels and through sinful mankind. Verse 12 shows exactly who we are battling against. We are battling against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, and against spiritual hosts of wickedness. So even though we will probably not face Satan himself, there is a horde of demonic beings opposing the church, and individual believers today. Know your enemy. Know your enemy. Now, please, as we examine this, as we know some, and I've already spoken some about who he is and what he is doing and his attempt to terrorize and who he uses, but please do not get overly caught up in it. Don't ignore it either. Demonism is a topic that seems to be either swept under the carpet in the church today or unduly feared, one or the other. We need to be on guard against these forces. We need to know who they are and how they operate so that we can resist them. Ignoring them and pretending they don't exist is not being on guard. Cowering in fear because of them is also not being on guard. Recognize them for what they are. 
for what they are doing. These beings are powerful agents of Satan sent out to rule over and to terrorize the earth. They are bent on the destruction of the church and believers individually. They want evil. They want chaos to reign supreme. And they will use every weapon at their disposal. And there's a long list of weapons. Some of them we provide for them. They'll use fear, insecurities, selfish desires, discouragement, frustration, confusion, moral failure, doctrinal error, deception, greed. All of these things, they go on and on and on. This is what they will use. And some of them, I think, are really their favorite ones. In the, in the topic of demonism, fear is one of their primary ones. If they can get you afraid of what they can do, then you are no longer yielding to the control of the Holy Spirit. You're operating your own strength. Our insecurities, our frustrations, our anger, all of these things are tools at their disposal. Know who they are and what they are doing. They also have at their disposal our own sin nature, which unless it is overcome by the Spirit of Christ within us, is actually in league with their intents. So yes, a healthy degree of caution, of guardedness against these forces is absolutely necessary. It's absolutely necessary. But if we go back to verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. To stand against this. To stand. Verse 13. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. That means that we can withstand when they come against us. And when all is said and done and the battle has passed and the dust has settled, we can be there standing victoriously. So yes, we must know our enemy, but not unduly fear them. That's why I wanted to drive home that point at the very beginning. Because we are commanded to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We can be strong in the Lord. We must be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And so walk in victory regardless of the enemy. In the power of the Lord's might and in the armor that God has provided for the believer, you have all you need to hold your ground against any onslaught from Satan or his horde of evil minions and everything that they may throw against you in the power of the Lord and in the armor that he has provided for you. Now, going back to the point at hand, to be victorious, we must first know our enemy. Knowing your enemy doesn't mean you need to know every characteristic about them, but it does mean you need to know certainly how they operate. That is why we are told to put on the armor of God that, may be, be, sorry, that you may be able to withstand or stand against the wiles of the devil. In knowing something about them, Verse 12 is not so much given to us for information to know how they operate as just to have a framework of the powers that are, as far as I can conceive anyways. The list that's given there in verse 12, principalities, powers, rulers, and spiritual hosts, we believe that describes level of authority or position within Satan's kingdom. It describes a system of evil, and that's how it works. It works as a system of evil. That's not given to us to describe individually how they work. Okay, well, this power works this way and this ruler works this way. That's not why it's given. It is to make us aware that there is a system of evil out there that is attacking the church today. And that information particularly is given to us so that we would distinguish them from physical beings. 
which is why it says, beginning of verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against demonic beings from the highest to the lowest who are part of Satan's system of terror. And that is a major and and important distinction in this passage. We are not at war with people, but with a demonic spiritual system. Vital distinction to make. The war is not physical, but is spiritual. The enemy is not people, but Satan and his servants. Now that does not mean that you will not be attacked or persecuted physically by people, but the root cause is not the people themselves. We need to know where the attack comes from so that we can resist it. The need for that distinction, I think, has never been greater. On whatever topic you feel Christianity is being attacked or whatever issue you think evil is being promoted, it isn't the person who is the face of it that is your enemy. On a large global level, there is an attack against the universal church, but it isn't coming from the human mind in that sense or human organization or uh, specific human entities, but from Satan. On an individual level, you may feel attacked or threatened with attack by people, but it isn't their scheme or their plan. They are conduits of the schemes of Satan. Differentiating between these two things will be helpful in your response to the attacks, especially when it's an attack individually. Every person that attacks you is operating on a scheme of Satan. This is if they attack you for your faith, if they're opposing you for that. But every person, even that person who is attacking you, is a person who is made in the image of God and is in need of the saving work of God in their life. Every individual needs to see the grace of God demonstrated through believers today. If we don't differentiate between the person who we feel opposes us and the force behind that opposition, we will end up viewing people as our enemy when it is Satan who is our enemy. People need your prayers. People need to be saved, whereas Satan needs to be resisted. Don't resist people. Don't hate or make enemies out of people. Resist Satan and pray for and share the gospel and love with people. That means regardless of the face that you put on the attacks against the church today. And I could come up with a few in my mind that I think are attacking the church today. Regardless of the face that you put on it, whether it's a political leader, whether it's just a vocal opponent to Christian morals, that individual is not your enemy. That individual is someone for whom Christ died. Their attacks may still need to be confronted and resisted, but we see beyond the individual to the powers at work behind the scenes. And so we resist those powers and their schemes in the name of Jesus Christ. We resist them by ensuring that we have the whole armor of God on. We resist them by by being equipped in the power of God to resist them. I'd like to have the time to completely examine that armor of God, but we're going to leave it for now. Particularly because there is one last lengthy thing that is not in my points, not my three points that I would like to draw your attention to this morning before I wrap up. And some of this may just be perspective. And you may, you may differ with me on that, and that's fine. And it is this point. Our battle is primarily defensive. You may ask what difference that makes, but it's an observation that I come up with from the text. And I think it's an important one, so I pray that you'll bear with me and consider it. Notice the defensive posture throughout this passage. We're told, first of all, to be strong in the Lord and put on the whole armor of God, okay? Even there, 
in that first statement, we recognize that generally or primarily that armor is defensive. An attacking force usually has lighter and even less armor, generally speaking. But even if that's just a supposition that I'm making, look at why we are commanded to be strong in the Lord and to put on the whole armor of God. The reason is, verse 11, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Stand against is primarily defensive. It means an opponent is coming at us and we are to resist it. Then skip down to verse 13. There it says that you may be able to withstand, once again, defensive. And then it goes, and having done all, to stand, defensive. I do not see in this passage the command to charge. This isn't a command to take the fight to them. Even the next verse, in verse 14, it says, stand therefore. Every bit of this picture, in my understanding of it, is a general or a captain of an army saying, brace yourselves, because an assault is coming. This is defensive rather than offensive. To continue in this train of thought, even a brief view of the armor reveals that five pieces of the armor are defensive. That is, they are to protect from a blow, and only one is offensive. Only the sword of the Lord could be understood as being a weapon to attack with. I can't see you attacking with your helmet, right? Swinging it viciously at your enemy. It's a defensive piece of armor, primarily, as each of the others are, except the sword. And even that one is used as much defensively as it is in offense. Why am I even going here? The church is under attack. People of righteousness and of faith are under attack, and we are to defend ourselves from, the, from that attack with the armor that God has granted to us in, and in his empowering. But God is not calling us to go out and attack Satan and his demons. God is not here, at least, calling us to wage war or to take war to the enemy. He's calling us to defend against the attacks of the enemy. We're not here commanded to take the battle to them. There is a growing faction within the church universal that sees themselves as warriors for Christ who are putting Satan to flight. And that bothers me. Guess what? You can't put Satan to flight. You're not called to. Absolutely, there's a time when he is to be cast out of individuals. There is a time. We pray that God would would put a biblical uh, or scripture here, a hedge of protection. Why a hedge of protection? Why not just get rid of them? A hedge, because it's defensive, primarily. This growing faction sees himself as warriors for Christ. But we can't, we are not called to vanquish Satan. And this term bothers me as well. We do not have the authority to cast Satan into the pit. And that can be used as terminology, has been used as common terminology. You don't have the authority to do that. Why would you? That time is coming. You're not going to be the one that does it. You do have power and authority to resist him and to be victorious over his schemes. But that doesn't mean he is going to stop attacking you. As a matter of fact, the greater your resistance against him and the more victorious you are are over his schemes, the harder he is going to attack. And we should be expecting those attacks and we should be on the defensive against those attacks so that we can resist those attacks. We tend to have this idea that if we could just stop 
certain activities in the world that all would be well. So if we could just stop people from teaching about evolution, which is an admirable desire, if we could shut down abortion clinics, which is a very admirable desire, it, it would be great. If we could stop people from getting addicted to substances, and if we could stop wars from happening, and if we could stop this and stop this and stop this, we just want evil to be beaten, don't we, once and for all. But that isn't going to happen until Jesus Christ comes back. And even if we were able to force that to happen, and we put a stop to every bad thing that was out there, and we had a very good and moral society, but hearts were not saved through the glorious grace of God in Christ Jesus, then what would we have accomplished? Would we really have given Satan a beaten? No. You'd actually be making the issue worse because moral, self-righteous people without Christ are often far more difficult to bring to salvation than people who are aware of their obvious depravity. This is why the only part of the armor that may be assumed to be for offense as a weapon of attack that is, is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. If you really want to go on the offensive for Jesus Christ against Satan, then preach the Word. Don't worry about all these other topics. Some of them, yes. The church today needs to take a stand on them. We need to stand up for them, absolutely. But if our concern is, is to attack the stronghold of Satan, then we do it by preaching the word, not by forcing a society to be more moral. We do it by preaching the word. These people and organizations that we see as conduits for the schemes of Satan, they don't just need reform. They need to get saved. They need that. And I've heard it said, and I'm sure that I've said it as well myself, that if the word of God spreads through this country and a spiritual awakening takes place, we wouldn't have to change these laws that are in place. We wouldn't have to change the abortion law if an awakening of, an awakening too? I, I don't like the term revival because revival says that you're reawakening something that already was alive, but an awakening towards Jesus Christ where, where people are surrendering to him and, and coming to know him as Lord and Savior. You wouldn't have to change the, or worry about changing the law on abortions because people would come to see the truth of the word of God and the value that he places on human life and the thought of abortion would be repugnant to them. We wouldn't have to force change to the education system so they wouldn't teach evolution because if, if there was an awakening towards God, then people would realize the truth of the word of God and would believe the truth of the word of God. We wouldn't have to invest more and more in addiction counseling because people would find their purpose and meaning and satisfaction in God. And I would rather have a nation or an institution or even a, a church, absolutely, that is guided by a heart that seeks after God than the potential moral uprightness of man. I don't just want people to be reformed, to be better people and head for hell. So when it says that when it's speaking about spiritual warfare, we resist, we resist, we resist, we stand, except for in one area that's offensive, and that is that we preach the gospel, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We need people to get saved, and they will be transformed and become like Jesus Christ, which will also include a transformation of their morals, rather than to enforce morals on unchanged people. 
that whole portion there, that's just some very general observations. And it's from my perspective, so you can take it or leave it. But I don't think you can ignore the fact that in this passage, when it comes to being a force to be reckoned with spiritually, we are called to defend ourselves, to be on the defense against the wiles of Satan and his army. Four times it speaks of that posture of defense in the word stand, 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 stand. And five of the six pieces of armor are defensive rather than offensive. That's not just happenstance. And besides the point, victory, though possible and expected of the believer today, will not be ultimate and eternal until Christ comes back in glory. When he does return, he will not be greeted, this is according to scripture, he will not be greeted by a church that has destroyed and abolished Satan and evil, but prayerfully he will be greeted by believers living victoriously, continuing to stand against the wiles of the, of the devil and having done all to stand. So first point, how to be a force to be reckoned with. Know your enemy. Next week we'll see that not only must we know who is attacking us and how he is attacking us, but we must also know our standing in Jesus Christ and our dependency upon Jesus Christ. But I pray that you would be encouraged this morning. Your enemy is like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But God is master of all things, even him, and has already determined Satan and his followers' outcome. He's determined their eternal fate, and he will bring it to pass. Our God is in control. And we can be strong in him and in that infinite power of his might. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have made victory possible in our own lives spiritually, not through our power, but through the power of your might. And we acknowledge that we face attacks. Whether we can actually say this is from Satan and his horde of of demons, or whether we can say this is just from my own sin nature, which desires to do evil as well but that not just once or twice, but daily and and hourly and moment by moment, we face these attacks. We thank you, Lord, that we can be victorious in them, that we do not have to live defeated because of your power at work within us. That same power that raised Christ from the dead is alive and at work in his children. Lord, I pray that that thought would sink into our minds that we would get out of this defeatist mentality of saying, I have to give in, I just keep giving in, I don't know what to do, but give in. And that we would realize that that is an insult against you, the one who has provided all that is necessary for us to live in victory. We thank you that it is your power, it is according to your might. And so we submit to you and we say, empty us once again of ourselves, fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would be able to rise up and to stand. That in boldness and in confidence, we would stand for the truth. We would stand for your word. We would stand for the values that we see within the word of God. And having done all to stand, that when you return, you would find us there standing, still standing and waiting for your return in victory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.